Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. This week, we're continuing our exploration of Bob Dylan at 80. And today's guest is Sean Latham. He is director of the Oklahoma Center for the Humanities. That doesn't sound very Dylan-esque. He is the editor of the James Joyce Quarterly, which interests me a great deal, but it's not Dylan yet. And he's also, okay, you're going to have to tell me again, director of the Bob Dylan Center, or how did you say it? Director of the Institute for Bob Dylan Studies. Right. In Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, Tulsa, Oklahoma, somehow was able to purchase this huge cache of manuscripts and other documents belonging to Bob Dylan. You're the guy who got to look at them first, aren't you? I wouldn't say I got to look at them first, but I've certainly been one of the people that got to see them uh, uh, relatively early compared to lots of other folks. So so what's in these lyrics, sketches? There's no music involved, is there? There's no audio. Oh, there's absolutely audio. Uh, oh, I okay. Think, I mean, this is essentially Dylan's um, life archive. It contains a few older pieces, you know, primarily, I would say the materials, um, as I understand it, date from roughly the time that he went to Woodstock after the motorcycle accident, um, when he sort of finally had a settled place to live. Not surprisingly, he started acquiring uh, and saving stuff. Uh, and it contains, I mean, we're a little, it, it's a little unclear, actually, how you count the material in there when I've talked to the to the librarian and archivist. Sometimes we say there are 100,000 objects in it. The catalog for the material contains 800,000 entries. Um, so that includes recordings, stems for all the recordings, a million different photographic proof sheets, you know, uh, uh, as well as, yeah, notebooks, lyrics. There are objects like Bruce Langhorne's tambourine and the black leather jacket Dylan wore when he went electric at Newport. Um, but really, the the core, you know, for someone like me, the treasure there, the real core of the material, uh, in addition to the recordings, are just the vast amount of paper materials where you see Dylan at work in his workshop, drafting, redrafting, abandoning far more than he actually puts onto record. It's just an absolute treasure trove. The website for the Bob Dylan Archive says six thousand items, and you're saying eight hundred thousand. So you're cataloging each page of each document, or I would say. And I'm not cataloging. I'm not the archivist. Right, I direct okay. the research center. And so it may be even useful to sort of understand that we think of ourselves as kind of a th three-legged stool. There's the Bob Dylan Archive, which is owned by a private foundation here in Tulsa. And that, and they will also operate the Bob Dylan Center, which is going to be the sort of public, the public interface for these materials, essentially a kind of museum in downtown Tulsa, um, adjacent to the Woody Guthrie Center here. Uh, there's the Bob Dylan Institute, which is what I direct, which is in charge of the kind of the work of scholarship that will go on around this material. And then, of course, there's there's Bob Dylan's uh, own interests, um, you know, and we're always sort of at least checking in with them. So they're aware of the kind of work that we're doing. Is this going to attract a lot of fans, do you think? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think that. I think that was one of the reasons uh, why you acquire something like this and bring it to a place like Tulsa. Um, the, the, the organization that acquired it here is called the George Kaiser Family Foundation, and their their goal, their mission uh, is to make Tulsa a significant place and to make it a wonderful place to live. So, um, And they direct deeply in the community, doing all kinds of things from like caring for women with children who come out of prison um, to anti-poverty programs and anti-racist programs in the city. Uh, in some sense, the cultural work that they do with things like the Woody Guthrie Center and the Bob Dylan Center are kind of a, a secondary aspect of that work of making Tulsa a rich and livable city. 
In some ways, though, you'd expect a Bob Dylan Center to be in Minnesota. And when, where's Woody Guthrie from? Uh, Woody Guthrie's from Oklahoma. I mean, he's from just down the okay. street. So Okay, uh, so that makes sense. Yeah. So I guess it's the Woody Guthrie connection that brings Bob Dylan there, because he's the one who chose to sell it, right? Uh, Dylan's absolutely the one. I mean, Dylan's management and Dylan himself, I assume, are the ones that uh, that decided to sell it. Um, you know, when he when they announced it, he said he was glad it was going to be near the Dylan. I was sorry during the near the Woody Guthrie archive. He was glad that it was in a sort of crossroads part of America. I, I won't. I don't recall his exact quote, but it was talking a little bit about the fact that this was Indian territory for a long time, and this is a, you know, it's a very complicated history. Uh, and since Dylan's songs are about the complications of history, often, uh, you know, I, th I think it makes a certain kind of sense. But certainly, one of the big appeals is being able, in my view where these things are all going to be located in downtown Tulsa is you can start at the Woody Guthrie Center, go next door to the Bob Dylan Center, uh, and then turn around and go to a concert at Kane's Ballroom uh, up the street where Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys used to play. <laughs> was this acquisition made before or after the Nobel Prize? Uh, it was made before the Nobel Prize. In fact, uh, it was... Because that would have driven the price up. <laughs> I would, you know, I would imagine, and I'll say, Dylan's our second Nobel laureate here in Tulsa. We have, we also have uh, the papers of V.S. Naipaul in my university's library, um, and I was actually working here in the English department when we acquired Naipaul's life archive. And then when he got the call for the, you know, when he got the Nobel, and our phones were all ringing off the hook. So we're old hands at, at handling. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I mean, but it is an amazing thing that Tulsa can can hold. You know, the life archive essentially of two Nobel laureates. That's yeah. that's a that's a distinction that very few cities, very few countries really can uh, can claim. So uh, it's an amazing thing. I remember when the Nobel was announced and this was the year that the Nobel was delayed a few days that it was clear that something was going on. And I should have gone to one of the betting shops and bet on <laughs> Dylan because I remember it's like five minutes before on Twitter and someone I know who works for a publisher was saying, OK, any ideas who's going to win the Nobel? And I just replied, Bob Dylan. And then when the announcement was made, he was like, how did you know? And I really should have bet on it. It, it is quite stunning. And, and there was such great criticism against it because, oh, he's just a songwriter. But I, I mean, you're the person now who's going to tell us that he's one of the world's great authors, isn't he? Oh, I certainly think that. I mean, I think the Nobel Committee made a, a very sensible um, decision. Uh, as you noted when you introduced me, I mean, I my background and training is, is as a James Joyce scholar. So it's what brought me to Tulsa. Tulsa, one of Tulsa's other little known facts is we're one of the world capitals for uh, James Joyce studies. Because long ago, when, when very few people were interested in James Joyce, uh, my university library acquired a great deal of Joyce archival material, uh, and then built up a, a graduate research program around it and built up the journal, which has been published now for 65 years that I edit, called the James Joyce Quarterly. The James Joyce Foundation is based here. So we're sort of one of the centers for doing James Joyce studies. Uh, so, you know, I came here because I was interested in one of the world's great authors. And, and to me, the sort of most important and most influential author of the early part of the 20th century, right? I don't think anybody else made a bigger difference in, in the literary and cultural world than James Joyce. And I consider myself incredibly fortunate that now I get to spend the second part of my career focusing on the most important and influential artist of the second half of the 20th century, Bob Dylan. I think, I think like Joyce, he, he's a figure that's of that same stature as Joyce. It's not just because of the art that he made. It's because of the influence that his art had on across so many different domains, not just music, but, but literature, 
you know, painting, drama, film. Dylan is everywhere as a kind of cultural figure in the same way Joyce was. So it's, you know, it's an amazing sort of pairing. See, I've got some Dylan prints on the wall here. <laughs> I've got a bunch of them. I like his artwork. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Were you a Dylan fan before this all happened? Or were you an overnight Dylan fan? I mean, I was I was an overnight Dylan expert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I would say I was a Dylan fan. And, I, you know, I mean, I can remember the my university president brought me into the office, his office on campus and said, uh, I have some news for you. We were going to might we at the time the university acquired a small part of the archive along with um, the private foundation, but basically said we're, we're acquiring and jointly housing this uh, this a big new collection and it's going to be Bob Dylan. And you're the person here that seems to know how to do a lot of work focused on one person. So will you help us sort of organize our response? We're not going to announce this for a little while. Um, and the best part of this was he said, and I, it'd be great if you could teach a course on Bob Dylan, cause it would really look great. Like if we knew what we were doing before we announced <laughs> the archive. Yeah. So I put together a course on Bob Dylan and was teaching it. I was halfway through the class when the Nobel prize was announced. And of course I couldn't tell the students, but I was like, you know, uh, wow. or, or sorry, not when the Nobel announced, I was halfway through the class when the acquisition of the archive was announced. Right. So I could kind of teach yeah. this class and they're like, well, it's weird that we're, you're teaching a class on Dylan, but that's, that's fine. Like it's, you know, it's fun to study stuff. And then halfway <laughs> through, they're like, Oh my God, can you believe it? I was like, I can believe it. In fact. <laughs> so, so you also have a book coming out called the world of Bob Dylan. We're recording on May 3rd. I think it comes out. Is it out in the U S it comes out in the UK in a few days. Yeah, it should be out. Uh, it should be out now. I think, um, I think there's been a slight delay. I think they've pushed it back two weeks now in the U.S. as well. You know, we're trying to get as close to the birthday as possible. So this is the kind of textbook for a course on Bob Dylan, it looks like. This is a number of chapters about different elements of Dylan's life and, and cultural context and the music by different authors. Yeah, I, I, it could definitely serve that purpose. I mean, I think we're, we're obviously aiming this at a much bigger audience. I think what this book is meant to be is the sort of first book that comes after the announcement of the archive, after the Nobel, to sort of say, here's all the stuff you might need to know about Dylan. Like, are you not sure about why Dylan, you know, is important or what his influence or significance might be? I brought together for the, you know, for this book, something like 25 uh, different experts. Um, let's see, I, I think we have 27 chapters and I wrote one of them. So two of them, I guess, so 25 experts from all different fields, from philosophy and, um, you know, and, and law and sociology and marketing, um, all are coming together in this book to sort of offer, uh, you know, what, what we're calling a sort of fractal or prismatic view of Dylan, because there's no one way to get your mind around what Dylan is. So I thought by bringing together people in this kind of symposium, you're going to get what we think is the state of the art of how to think about Dylan right now from all these different perspectives. So it's, yeah, it's a kind of textbook, but it's a textbook for anybody that wants to know what, what should I know about Dylan and country music? Or what do I need to know about Bob Dylan and civil rights movement? Or what do I need to know about the Bob Dylan archive? We've got all of that kind of stuff covered here. So it's a book you can kind of skip around in and find your interests. Um, and I'm sure as you read one chapter, it'll lead you into another and then into another. So, uh, and all written in a really accessible way. It's by no means a textbook or, a, or you know, an academic book in that sense. Right. But you're on that team. And, and isn't there a risk of the academiation or whatever of that when academics grab hold of someone like this, you're going to start looking at it in a very different way than fans who have more of a visceral understanding, more of a personal understanding? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's absolutely what this book aims to do is to manage what do I want to say that transition between fandom and scholarship. 
Um, and sometimes absolutely scholarship can sound and feel like debates about angels dancing on the head of a pin. We don't want to do that. And it's also true that we're not at that moment. Like scholars have barely scratched the surface of Bob Dylan, in part because of the discovery of the, the, the release of the Dylan archive. A lot of the work that you could do on Dylan was was based in commentary up to this point, right? I mean, we had the stuff that had been published, we had interviews, but you didn't really have access to the materials from the workshop itself. So, so in that sense, we're at this moment where the doors to, to, to scholars are just starting to creep open. And it, and it is a pivotal moment. I mean, I think it's fair to say when you look back at any historical sort of period and think about what scholars do, we, one thing we do is serve as a kind of cultural memory, right? We, we, we preserve what we think is important and, that understanding of what is important changes over time. Uh, but there's only going to be one or two pop performers or pop popular music writers from this era that are going to be remembered, right? So who, who should that be and why? It's not that, or I shouldn't say remembered, I should say studied and taught in classes and being taught is sort of your pipeline to eternity uh, in some ways, yes. right? So there are yeah. hundreds of thousands of books, millions of books published in the early part of the 20th century, that, which is my area of, you know, initial area of expertise, we study maybe 50 or a hundred of them, <laughs> you know, so yeah. we're, we're in a sorting and selection process. And I think yeah. it's clear, as I said before, that Dylan is one of those people because his work touches so much other stuff. It's pretty obvious to me that this, he's going to be one of the people that survive, that, that endures. And thus it's absolutely important um, that we, that we do this kind of first step of like, well, here's why, here's why he matters to me as a philosopher. Here's why he might matter to me as a scholar of world literature. Here's why he matters to me as a marketing professor, right? All of those different things give you this sense of why Dylan is important. I think we're also getting to a point where the first person experienced Dylan fans are going to be gone very soon. And so by, I think by, by latching on to Dylan now, by starting to investigate it now, you can actually still get some spoken word stuff from an oral history from people. But as Kirk says, I think at some point that academic part is going to be kind of ripped off from the fandom and, and be its own thing. And um, do you think that, I mean, does that have an effect on the way Bob Dylan will be looked at? Or do you, is, it, is he going to have two worlds, an academic world and I get to hear rainy day women on the radio every, every two months. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, and I would say, I think, yeah, that I don't know if there'll be fundamentally two different worlds. Um, but one of the things that will make Dylan really interesting as an artist compared to James Joyce, who will always be my kind of yardstick for this, right, is we don't have we have three recordings of Joyce's voice, right? Because Joyce didn't really live in an age of mass media recording. Uh, and the way uh, yes, but that one recording of him doing the bit of Anna Olivia Plurabelle is what opened up Finnegan's Wake for me. When I heard that and the rhythm of his voice, that allowed me to read Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, and so what's astonishing is we have Dylan doing that for every one of his really, you know, recording right. songs. <laughs> and so I, you know, to go, I mean, to go to the to the point Doug's making here, like I think that means therefore Dylan's going to live on in a way that Jane Austen never quite right. can because. We don't have Jane Austen reading her books. We don't know what the, what Jane Austen in performance might sound like, but we'll always have what Dylan sounds like. And there will always be people that just love that. I mean, just like in the Joyce world, there are plenty of Joyce fans. Kirk, you sound like like somebody that's really interested and has been reading a lot of Joyce. But um, you know, I don't know if you've submitted an article to James Joyce Quarterly, right? You probably don't have it. Nah. Like, so there'll always be that kind of. I think I think there are going to be figures like this that are always on both sides of that line. They have fans and. You know what academics may condescendingly sometimes call amateur readers, um, 
you know, but I would just call sort of people that don't work in the academy. And I think you're going to have that. Freelance scholars <laughs> or independent scholars, I think is the term. Yeah. And they do. I mean, I can tell you, like at JJQ, we've published articles by people in prison. We've published articles by lawyers who've made really important finds that, that do this as sort of because they're passionate about it. And I think we're going to find that multiplied tenfold with someone um, like Dylan, because so much of the work can be done um, by people who, who aren't necessarily trained within the academy. Now, that said, this stuff will, will matter because as those first-generation fans, second-generation fans go away, it'd be nice to replace them, and you replace them with students, right? Who, who I'm teaching them not just because I'm going to say Bob Dylan is important, because I want to spark their love of Bob Dylan and make sure that they, too, are wanting to hear him on the radio and put him on their Spotify playlists and right. uh, and and still want to hear Rainy Day Women themselves, right? So I think that's essential work. The, the thing that I always think about is when I um, I grew up listening, my parents listened to Duke Ellington and Fats Waller and Ella Fitzgerald and people like that, and I would read about them, but there's no way that I would get the feel of when, you know, the record would first come out or the cultural situation that was happening. So, I mean, we'll, yeah. I, that's what I wonder about is, will people understand the cultural significance of the time 40 years from now, 50 years and I, from you now? Know, I think the other thing that makes Dylan fundamentally different than than that, and and this isn't maybe true of the comparison you just drew, but is the fact that you that Bob Dylan covers are as interesting as important as Bob Dylan originals, right? You can't really cover James Joyce, right? It, it just doesn't. That sounds weird. Um, yeah. I can read him, I guess, but <laughs> that's not quite the same thing as covering. But covering, finding something new within a song, finding a new voice, finding a new way within it, finding out. You know, Regina Spector was performing, I think, "Blowing in the Wind" at the Women's March uh, on Washington three years ago. Right. That was and like the whole crowd could sing it. It was this moment of telescoping history sort of back to, to, to the, Mar the original March on Washington with Martin Luther King Jr. It just the ability to cover songs because songs, as Dylan said, in his Nobel acceptance speech, they live in the singing of them. Right. He doesn't want them studied on the page. He says he wants them studied in performance. And I think that was why he was reluctant to accept the Nobel initially was he doesn't want to be seen as a writer. He wants to be seen as a performer and a songmaker. That, that that will make studying Dylan fundamentally different, too, because it's not just that there will be fans and there will be scholars. There will also be a whole world of performers that are covering Dylan's music. I think it helps me to think of Bob Dylan as like a Shakespeare. It's like the the stuff's written down. You can interpret it any way you like. But and and there's two audiences. There's a, an academic audience for it. And there's a there's a let's go to the play tonight audience for it. So. I There's the modern so. dress audience and the contemporary dress yes, audience. Exactly. <laughs> well, and I, I can tell you a funny story about this. So when I taught that Dylan course here, I had about 25 students in it um, the, the first time. And I thought I had a great idea for the first day of class. We were going to I was going to show them what a, an amazing songwriter was Dylan was by studying uh, by just looking at Tangled Up in Blue. I thought it was a song they'd all know. It'd be easy for us to talk about. Not a single one of them had heard the song. Before. I wouldn't expect that age to know it. I would expect maybe they'd heard tambourine man maybe they'd heard blowing in the wind but tangled up in blue not really at that age well so yeah i should so i should ask you i uh but but no they didn't know that so i thought okay i thought okay change gears we'll do this instead with blowing in the wind everybody in here will know blowing in the wind one person knew blowing in the huh. wind and they knew it as a peter paul and mary record that their parents right. had played huh. i was like okay scratch everything just go home for today i, I obviously can't <laughs> teach this course maybe i should reconsider my life choices and <laughs> Uh, but I said, look at your favorite artists and see if they've covered a Dylan song. You'll probably only need to look at two or three and then come in prepared to talk about that. Every single one in, you know, the next class was amazing. Every student came in with, 
I can't believe like Adele and like that was a Bob Dylan song. Yeah. Like, it was they'd all found one. And that's from terrific. that point on, the class just took off like a rocket. So that that's the thing that says to me, this is why it's worth studying, because it's still being made. We just don't always know that it's a Dylan song uh, right. that we're hearing because we're hearing it, you know, through uh, through covers by other performers and artists. That's very encouraging. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that people are still covering Dylan. Yeah. yeah. But if they didn't know any Dylan songs, why did they take a course about Dylan? Did it just look like an easy A? Oh, I'm sure not. Uh, not for me. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, I have a bad reputation. Oh, you've got that reputation, reputation, do you? Um, but no, I mean, I would say, I, I asked that question on the first day. One was like, I'm just taking this because my, uh, my brother said if I didn't take it, he'd kill me. And <laughs> several of them, and this is amazing to me, right? In an age where parents often feel like, we often feel like we're struggling with parents sometimes with the, with the books we assign. And um Many of them said, well, my parents saw this and said, I have to take this class. <laughs> you know? Like, wow. so, uh, and that's not usually how it goes down in English, right? Um, no. <laughs> and, and so I, I, that, that too, I thought was really interesting that, that Dylan is important enough, like that I, no one sort of asked as they used to. I mean, I teach, all, I teach games on a lot. Of, I mean, I teach courses on lots of different topics, especially in sort of popular media and culture. That's one of my areas of expertise. So I teach courses on video games where I raise a lot more parent eyebrows and things. And uh, not a, no one even questioned whether or not you should be teaching a course on Bob Dylan. It was just like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. He's a major American literary figure. It's, it's just funny. It's just, it was not controversial at all. No one questioned the merit of doing a thing like mm -hmm. this. Are there any other popular musicians that are taught in this way? Outside of music schools, I mean. I'd say the Beatles. You see, you see lots and yeah. lots of courses on the Beatles. Uh, in fact, I think some of the pioneering courses in this kind of field of pop, you know, one of the interesting things about pop music studies is it's kind of everywhere because it's based on where people are, are, who are interested in pop music found a life in the academy. So there are a lot of English professors. There are certainly a lot of music professors. There are media and communications people, uh, philosophy uh in in some cases theater departments um so he's kind you know those studies are kind of scattered around the universities in interesting ways and i think the beatles are the only other i think the beatles may have been the first to sort of draw that kind of serious attention i think in part because they they could be clearly rooted in music departments there are a lot of technical ways to talk about what makes a beatles song tick that works well with music theory dylan's many many things, but I, I don't think he's a great sort of inventor of musical, of complex musical forms that are, that are amenable to interpretation through musical theory in the way that the Beatles harmonies are. Right. But in, so in a music course, I can understand that. But so what you're doing is the English department, but it's also a, a broader cultural department, but it's not looking at music as music. Yeah. I'm not a trained musicologist by, by any means. Right. I'm a, I mean, I'm a, I'm an, I'm probably the person Dylan doesn't want studying <laughs> you know, like, I want to live in performance, and yet here I am, an English professor uh, who can't really tell you very much about music theory. Um, but I can tell you a lot about Dylan's writing and how he makes. How he are, makes are there a, are there a lot of other popular musicians that have archives like this? So you mentioned the Woody Guthrie archive, and since you're overseeing sort of two different archives in one state, you must know of all the other archives for popular musicians, all three of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, and I don't oversee the archives at any, at any mean, by any means. I, that, that's a whole other team. I, I, I work on the scholarly side. Um, right. But from the academic side. Yeah. You know, 
Prince and Paisley Park is going to be coming on, you know, it's coming online. That archive is there. Um, I think that one's going to be really interesting and important. And I think there is a there is a Grateful Dead archive. Absolutely. We've, we, and we've got them. So we've got at this I'm hosting this big conference for Dylan's 80th birthday called Dylan at 80 here. That's going to be all virtual. And we're bringing together what I thought were some of those archivists that, that we ought to be having in, involved in this conversation. So we've got the archivists from the Grateful Dead archive. Um, the Leonard Cohen archive is coming online. Um, and in, in Canada. And so we've got representative from, from that group talking, the Bruce Springsfield, Bruce Springsteen collection in Monmouth, New Jersey is coming online. Those, so those are the big ones that I know about. There isn't yet a Beatles archive. Um, you know, I, I think when I was talking, that's surprising, but when I was talking to the people that ultimately pulled the trigger on making this acquisition, they were talking to a dealer and they said, and the dealer knew that Tulsa wanted a musical archive that would put it on the map. And he said, okay, I think I've got it for you. You need to fly to where I think it was New York and we'll have this conversation. And he got on the plane thinking it's either going to be the Beatles or Bob Dylan. Uh, so you know, it landed and it turned out it was, it was Bob Dylan. Um, but yeah, so the Beatles archive archives, I don't know how they've broken up their, their individual life archives as well. That's all still out there. So that's yeah. going to be another. But yeah. now, is this something that's going to lead to a trend? As more musicians want to establish their perennity, they might want to get a university to take their archives, right? Yeah, you know, and I think, yes, and I'll be very interested to see how all this plays out because there are sort of, when you look at how it works with, with literary archives, it's a complicated world of dealing in archives and acquisitions and their their major pieces of property, of physical property. They're complicated because you don't buy the intellectual property, right? You're not buying copyrights, you're buying objects. So we may hold all of these papers in the Bob Dylan archive, but we don't hold the copyrights to any of that material. That's Dylan's property. Can you publish facsimiles of them? Do you have the right to do that? Not without not without the permission of the oh, okay. Dylan's of right. whoever controls Dylan's copyrights. Yeah. Uh, no. So that's the, you know like that's the thing with archivists like they own objects they don't own rights those are yeah hatchable pieces of property it's, you know so is there going to be a trend uh, you know absolutely um, and for me the interesting thing will be to see does it work the way that literary archives kind of did where what happens is you get this concentrating effect because in some sense you want these things to be close together what we don't you know a, a potentially bad outcome is fifty musical archives scattered across fifty states. Where mm. there's something to be said about being able to study Bob Dylan's archive alongside, say, Joan Bias's archive, right? That would be, it would be nice to have those two things not, and not have but to But each university the, wants their anything. own selling point. So that's why I say it's going to be interesting to see which way it goes. So like in, in the field of modern literature, you know, basically uh, uh, Yale and the Beinecke Library at Yale and the Harry Ransom Research Center at the University of Texas between them, they almost hold everything you need, you know, and so you can go to the you can go to the Harry Ransom Center and, you know, just go through author after author after author's archives. And and for authors, that's often amenable to them. They want to think I want my stuff alongside. Right? There's a kind of accretive value to that. Like, oh, I, I'm good enough to be in the Harry Ransom Center. I absolutely want my stuff to be sitting there alongside you know, Virginia Woolf's manuscripts or whatever it might be. So I think. You know, with with Dylan and Guthrie here, it's certainly possible that I think you're going to see other archives at least exploring the idea of whether or not they can be in they can be in Tulsa. There's something to that proximity that matters to both the artists 
and to the institutions. Is it possible that in the popular music world, there just aren't enough archives, that people didn't keep papers the way, say, Dylan and other people did? Yeah, I mean, there are at least two big questions there. Dylan is, because Dylan's 80, Dylan works on paper and pencil and yes. notebook and yes, computer, so there's actually an object there. You know, archives in the future are going to be hard disks. <laughs> um, so much easier to store, right? Um, and and so, you know, I, I, and I think that's a good question. I, the, and the short answer is, I don't really know what musicians keep. I mean, it's interesting that the Dylan, yeah. the Dylan one sort of starts, as I said, at that moment when he moves to Woodstock and settles down for the first time. And, and either him or maybe an enterprising assistant there started saving stuff, and then they just started saving more and more stuff. So does every musician, and of course, most musicians don't start out knowing they're going to be amazing musicians and mm -hmm. they're obviously sleeping in couches and moving flats or whatever. And so lots of stuff gets thrown away and lost. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I don't think they spend a lot of their time thinking I need to make sure to save everything so that one day when I'm famous, my archive can have <laughs> a rough draft of my song or right. those guitar, you know, that old guitar <laughs> that I, that I traded. Well, it's going to be a word document with all the uh, updates and the history and all that stuff. Right. And, you know, and literary archives work on this too. I mean, it's a bit off topic, but you know, one of the most interesting things, uh, whose is it? Rushdie's archive is, is at Emory university. And one thing you can do is go, he, he, he worked on a Macintosh on one of the early Macs, uh, with a desktop and they've emulated his desktop in the archive. So you go in and you can like, see the computer desktop that Salman Rushdie had and go through this, you know, how did he save his files and when, hmm. um, who was in his address book, all that kind of stuff is all sort of in the environment that he used it. And so we'll have to think about that for archives in the future with Dylan. Yeah. We're looking at paper and things that feel familiar to somebody like me. That's not really how artists or writers work anymore. We all work on these computers. Did you remember to save enough copies of your draft so we can trace its evolution? Or did you write the thing, make tons of revisions and just keep saving over the top of the same document? And oops, we don't actually know, you know, how we got from point A to point B, at least with when you work on paper, we can see cross outs and scratch outs and the typed version and the fair typed version and so on. So that brings me to the question about what's called genetic criticism. Is that what you call it in the States? Yeah, absolutely. Where you're looking at different versions and drafts and corrections and in, in some ways, isn't what matters the end point? How important is it to know that he crossed out, I don't know, one word to put in a different word, or he erased a line or added a line? And particularly with Dylan, sometimes he's added uh, whole stanzas to, in lyrics to his songs over the years in performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so yeah, this goes to a whole question. Like, there's a whole branch of, edit, of like of people who do editorial work that that work on this thing. And genetic criticism sort of is a way of trying to say, yeah, all that stuff matters. Um, because I, for somebody like me, absolutely. I think that stuff is really important to understand um, how a song gets made. Because one thing I think we think we're studying is the creative process. Um, and to see when things go bad and how they get corrected, or to say, there was an even better song there that got abandoned. I wonder why. Right. Like and, and to then ask, why did this particular set of changes get gets made? It's really easy to sort of fetishize the final product. This happens more in literary studies, I think, where you sort of get to the published book and you're like, oh, well, that's it. Except, you know, we have plenty of examples. Yeats, for example, constantly revised his poems and changed them. And some of the changes feel good. Some don't. Um, 
Or T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland, with all the corrections that Ezra Pound made. Yeah, right. So, and that first poem is really, really interesting. And and like, oh, it turns out it was a co-written document because Pound went through and like line edited and cut out tons of stuff and changed that original one called He He Do the Police in Different Voices into The Wasteland. It kind of created, turned a sort of weird but familiar poem into this abstract modernist poem. So, you know, there you see that, that kind of collaborative process. With Dylan, we get that collaborative process. I mean, if you've listened to any of the bootlegs, you you know this. Like, yeah, those things really matter because we can hear like a Rolling Stone start as a waltz with right. no organ, right? And then get into this kind of slow swinging 4-4 thing. Um, and then all of a sudden, right, the snare shot lands and and the organ comes in, at, you know, an eighth note behind. And you're like, oh, this is it. Like, you just heard magic. Like, this was like watching a wizard cast a spell, right? Uh and yeah, those other things were really interesting too. What would it have meant? Like the fact that Dylan first heard that song as a waltz, what does that tell us about how he might've understood who Miss Lonely Hearts is? Is this a kind of love song with her? I mean, the waltz is a kind of traditional, you know, for, love song form, not an angry rocking kind of song. And so to me, when I hear that, I then hear a sort of a bit of love, that love song that's still kind of there, even though the song sounds like an angry rocker. Um, and I even, I mean, for me, I hear in that organ in the final version of that song, the leftover bits of that waltz, that there's still a kind of loving fascination with Miss Lonely Hearts, that she's not just being made fun of, which is what the sort of released version of the song sounds like, but he's still kind of in love with the idea that she might just really be on her own. She might be totally out there in a way that nobody can understand. And I think the genetic record lets us hear that and pick that up in a way that we couldn't have before, while also hearing these moments of inspiration. This is what it, this is what inspiration looks like. And yet you can imagine the alternate timeline where Al Cooper didn't come up with that organ riff. Yeah. And the song would have been totally different. Yeah, absolutely. And Dylan spends a ton of his time going back and then revisiting these songs, right? Like, I'm just going to re-record it in a different, or perform it at least, in a different way. Sometimes he'll record those performances. I mean, Dylan's fascinating because he does that, right? There isn't a final, like, there's no finished version of a Dylan song, right? He, He refuses that. It's, I mean, you know... I remember where I read the quote. Basically, at some point, he said, I don't want to be fat Elvis. Like, I don't want to be like yeah. going to Vegas and like going out for this aging audience so that they can hear me play the same song for the 5,000th, 50,000th time. And so, of course, it frustrates some people when you go to a Dylan concert and it takes you a long time to realize that this like surf beat song you're listening to is, <laughs> is like a Rolling Stone, right? Yeah. How could that possibly make sense? But okay, like he's not going to give up on it. It's still a thing to be made rather than a thing to just freeze in amber and, and move along. Uh, and that that's one of the things that makes Dylan, I think, astonishing. is is And it goes to his method, which, you know, for me, it's never one about pure inspiration. It's always about working materials from the past into new forms. And as he becomes part of the past, right, as he writes hit songs and they enter into the American kind of pop canon, he just keeps doing it. He's like, okay, well, now I'm going to go, if I'm part of history, that means I can work on my own stuff now, the same way that I used to work on the blues or... Um, you know, Little Richard songs. Now I can just do that to myself and I'll reinvent myself uh, in interesting ways. And so when you talk about the other stuff that's in the archive, it's not just that genetic, how did a song get made, I think, but all the work that Dylan put into his songs, right? The thing that- It's all the contextual references and the influences that fit together and they crystallize in his songs. I I mean, there's no greater takeaway for me from looking at material in the archive 
to learn that Dylan's not a romantic poet as much as we all want him to be and to think, oh, this just sprang from his head. Like he's and he's therefore he's speaking to my soul. Right. These words that came out on the page, they feel like they're just of the moment. I love him because he's speaking my soul back to me. I didn't have those words. He did. Dylan didn't have those words like Dylan is is working them and reworking them. And he's borrowing, you know, he's taking floating blues lines and breaking them and reassembling them in new ways. This is not a romantic poet that sort of sits there quietly in his study and composes a poem. Dylan is hard at work, quoting, contextualizing, I mean, researching, pulling up new songs, listening to things like, you know, I, I, I do a lot of work on the notebooks that he was working on in, in Woodstock um, between 66 and 68. And the astonishing amount of research Dylan is doing numbers and numbers, song lists, songs coming over the radio, top, top 25 playlists from radios from country stations. Clearly when he goes to Nashville, he's just like writing down every song he hears on the radio, you know, and is it, with passion and excitement. And this is clearly stuff that's going into the hopper that he needs to remember. And, and he's trying out lyrics. He's writing down news headlines, quotations, ideas that comes to head, signs that he sees that he thinks are funny around town, <laughs> all make it into these notebooks. And, and so you just get the sense that he's constantly inventing by gathering material like that. There's a massive gathering stage for Dylan that seems to proceed any moment of actually writing or attempting to write a song. There's just a vast amount of research there. So every song is just the very tip of this. I mean, it's a hackneyed metaphor, but it is the tip of the iceberg. And every song just has this giant weight that's underneath it that you can slowly unpack. And you can hear this if you ever listen to his Theme Time Radio Hour shows. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's fascinating. That he, he picks a theme, you know, I don't know, time or love or something. And he pulls these songs that half of them, three quarters of them, I've never heard of even the artists who are performing them. And he has this, he must have an enormous record collection, but he has this musical memory of things. As you said, you know, he's writing down the, the, the top 25 song list. He's remembering all yeah. this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think Theme Time Radio Hour is an amazing contribution from Dylan that, that ranks up there with some of the albums in the sense that it, it is a seminar in popular American music that I recommend to everyone is like, if you want to study what popular American music sounded like and how it changed and like, listen to this, Dylan knows his stuff. And those are, they're amazing history lessons. And, it, and they're hilarious, right? They're sort of, he's a fake DJ and he reads fake fan mail. And you also get a nice sort of insight into his, his humor and personality, I think in those shows. But I, I couldn't agree more that what, what their real value is as hearing a working artist saying, here's the material that no one's really studied very much or paid any attention to that is driving all of American popular music. And because Dylan was the one that sort of helped make that idea of how we make music, we need to listen to this teacher because he set his own syllabus uh, for decades. And now he's sharing it with us. Sean Latham, thank you very much. Oklahoma Center for the Humanities, Bob Dylan Center, and a whole bunch of other things. A new book coming out, The World of Bob Dylan. Links in the show notes. Sean, we'll have you back again to talk about Finnegan's Wake one day. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> This is the part of the show where we thank our generous-minded Patreon patrons for giving us the monetary support that a growing podcast like this one needs. If you like the podcast and you can swing a commitment to a few bucks a month, by golly, point your browser to patreon.com slash the next track and future listeners will salute you. 
Now, how about them next track picks we're always talking about? Kirk? My next track this week is a movie that I watched last week. It's the Zappa documentary. Now, we've been doing this podcast for what? Five years? Five years? And we've still never done an episode on Frank Zappa. And you're a big Zappa fan. And I'm not. And I'm kind of wondering why we've never done an episode about Zappa. And maybe the Zappa documentary answers that question, that he was so protean, 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 he was so protean with so many different, he did so many different things and different styles that you can't pin him down. This was an interesting documentary because there are a number of films from when he was very young. I guess his parents had a Super 8 movie camera. And so there's a lot of old footage. And there's even footage of some of the early performances. He seemed to document a lot. But there's an archive that would probably be apt for a certain type of university. I never really warmed to his music. And as much as I think he's an amazing guitarist, I mean, truly outstanding, I just don't like the sort of... How can I say? The the sort of poking fun at everything, the attitude in the songs. It's almost like, you know, in a way, Tom Lehrer's songs where he's he's talking about things and making fun of them. And I never really liked that. And and there's just a weirdness that kind of seems to have gone on too long. It's like that, that kind of weirdness when he did the things with, what was it, Flo and Eddie? Was that the, 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 the ones that were with him? And, and that just goes too far for me. But it was a really fascinating documentary. I sat through it riveted. I didn't know much about his life or his music, particularly what he did at the end of his life where he got into politics in a way, working as like a cultural envoy for the Czechoslovakian government. And, and the, the footage of him being welcomed in Prague after the Velvet Revolution by 5,000 people, you could see that he was just like electrified because he hadn't been welcomed anywhere like that in so long. So highly recommended. You can get it on, you know, the iTunes store and every place else. So it's just called Zappa. Just a question, Doug, when you listen to the music in there, most of the music is just songs with, with vocals and with, you know, brass and all that. But the last piece over the closing credits is one of these just amazing guitar solos that he's done. And this is the kind of stuff on, what is it, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar? Yeah, Shut Up and Play Your Guitar is a uh, three-record set that featured pretty much just guitar solos. Um, it's even been transcribed. You can buy the, the music for it. Play like Frank yourself. And that stuff is fascinating. Anyway, Zappa, the movie. Doug, what's your pick? Well... Uh, I'm picking an album that I'm actually, uh, I was looking forward to getting it and hearing it, and uh, I'm actually a little disappointed in it. Uh, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know I like British blues bands, and one of my favorites is the early Fleetwood Mac stuff. Well, last year, before the pandemic kicked in, Mick Fleetwood put together a, a show at the London Palladium to uh, as, as a tribute to the founder of Fleetwood Mac, Peter Green, great blues guitar player. And everybody's there. Pete Townsend, Billy Gibbons, uh, uh, Eric Clapton, uh, Kirk Hammett from Metallica is there, Jeremy Spencer and Bill Wyman and, and uh, Christine McVie. Everybody shows up. Now, I've seen a few clips of it, and I, I enjoyed seeing some of the videos, and I got really anxious about getting getting to see either either see it or listen to it. And I finally listened to it, or at least a couple of the tracks. And frankly, I'm just not impressed. Um I mean, there, it's not that there's a bad performance here or anything. Some of the stuff is actually quite good. The, the Kirk Hammett uh, guitar solo, blistering guitar solo on the Green Maharishi with the Two-Prong Crown, which is a great song. Um, really great version of it. And scattered throughout the album, there's just some great performances. But it reminds me of like when they have these award shows, like the, the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and everybody gets on stage at the end and kind of jams. 
And it just doesn't really have any... I mean, it's fun to see all the people standing around and playing all these famous faces. But it's... I don't know. I, I don't know why I don't like it. Of course, everybody at Amazon in the reviews at, for the Amazon is just nuts about it. And I, as much as I want to like it, I'm just not digging it. I'll have to give it a listen again. I have to listen to it all the way through. But it's just... I just don't know why I don't care for it. I'll have to listen to it some more. But anyway, that's why it's my next track, I guess. It is Mick Fleetwood celebrating the music of Peter Green in the early years of Fleetwood Mac, and it's my next track. This was episode number 209 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining. It's your support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams. And for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.